Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now everybody, welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Now before I get into this new episode, I just have a couple of brief announcements. First, I am happy to say that I just joined the Age of Radio podcast network, and I will give you more information on that as I progress into switching over to their platform. Next, I wanted to give a shout out to my newest Patreon supporter, Auckland. Thank you so much. Welcome. And you'll be receiving something from me in the mail very soon. If you're interested in providing support for the show, all levels of Patreon supporters receive stickers, other swag, and bonus content, of which there's one episode up right now. And higher levels also get the option of requesting a case for me to cover for Patreon episode, and that can be a case from anywhere. I'm using my Patreon episodes to do Beyond Alaska cases, so check it out. The link is in the show notes. Now that I've got that out of the way, let's get into today's case. Now, this episode requires a bit of a trigger warning and an explanation. I wasn't planning to ever cover this case because the details of the crimes are beyond horrific. Details that would end up horrifying veteran homicide detectives and FBI agents alike. So that is your content warning. I have heretofore avoided cases involving children, and this one involves two. I will be skipping over the specific details because That's just who I am as a person, and I have young children in my life, and I don't need that in my brain. So if you want to know more for some reason, you can probably find that online somewhere. I know this is a true crime podcast, but there are just certain things I don't think need to be discussed. I caved and decided to do this case because of a couple of reasons. First, it's fascinating to me from both a forensics and investigative standpoint, and also the FBI was extremely involved, and there were some revolutionary aspects of this case that involved the FBI and forensic uh, evidence. 
and there was a profiler involved, which was somewhat revolutionary at the time, at least in Alaska. Another reason is because it was a massive and shocking case. It was just all over the place. And lastly, I decided to do it because I'm about 99% certain that if the perpetrator had not been caught, that he surely would have gone on to be a serial killer. And honestly, by the new standards, he might actually be considered a serial killer, though it's a little iffy on that. So with that out of the way, don't say I didn't warn you. And here's today's case, the story of the Newman family murders. On March 15, 1987, Paul and Cheryl Chapman were woken early by their bedside telephone repeatedly ringing. It was Sunday morning and they were irritated that someone was calling so early. It was a co-worker of both Cheryl and her sister Nancy Newman from Gwenny's Old Alaska Restaurant. She said that Nancy hadn't shown up for the morning shift at 6 a.m. and her car was still parked in the lot where it had been since Friday. The Chapmans were immediately on edge because Nancy was very reliable and wouldn't have not called into work if she were sick. In fact, she was so reliable that in a year and a half of working there, she had only been late once. I don't know many people that can boast about that. The two knew why Nancy had left her car in the Gwenny's lot Friday night, but they found it hard to believe that Nancy would have left it there all day Saturday until Sunday morning. Her husband John was out of town on business, so Nancy had been home alone all weekend with her two young daughters. Cheryl had been surprised that Nancy hadn't called her for a ride to get her car the day prior, but now that she also hadn't made it to work, she was getting terrified. The couple rushed over to the Newman's apartment and let themselves in with the spare key that Cheryl kept. Cheryl was incredibly nervous and anxious and decided to wait out in front while Paul went down the hallway to look around in the bedrooms. A few minutes later, after he looked in each room, he came back into the living room, his face ashen and horrified and projecting the idea that something terrible had happened. Cheryl began screaming. She knew just by looking at him that something was very, very wrong. Nancy had been born in 1955 and was originally from California. She met her husband John in Idaho and they got married in 1975. They had one daughter, Melissa, in 1978 and a second daughter, Angie, in 1983. They had only moved up to Alaska a few years prior because John had found a well-paying job in Prudhoe Bay working for a local airline. Nancy had accounting experience and worked at H&R Block, as well as the morning shift at Gwenny's restaurant. Nancy's sister Cheryl had also married a man from Idaho, though she had met him in Alaska. The two sisters had been working at Gwenny's together for about a year. They were extremely close and spent quite a lot of time together especially while John Newman had been out of town. John Newman had been in California for several weeks prior to the murder of his family. He had gotten injured in his job as a heavy equipment operator and had been sent out of state to get trained for a new job. Two days prior to discovering the scene in the Newman's apartment, 
The Chapmans had spent the evening with Nancy. They had met up at Gwenny's and all ridden together to the Chapmans in one car. And rather than get dropped off back at her car later that night, Nancy just got a ride home and said she would get her car the next day. It had been just two days since they'd had a lovely evening with Nancy and seen her children off to bed. Now, less than 48 hours later, Paul Chapman had just discovered the unspeakable, horrible crime that had taken place sometime in their apartment. Nancy and both of her daughters had been savagely murdered. Both of the Chapmans were shaken beyond belief. They left the apartment, and while Paul stood sentry in front of the door after calling 911, Cheryl completely lost it. She couldn't think, couldn't breathe, and couldn't stop screaming. Law enforcement showed up, and after a cursory look in the apartment, knew that paramedics were not needed. They needed a homicide detective. Detective Spatafora from the Anchorage Homicide Response Team, the HRT, showed up quickly and took in the scene. Though he had worked many homicides, he had seen few that were this brutal. And since it was a triple homicide, he knew more men would be needed. Sergeant Grimes, head of the HRT at the time, also showed up, as well as several members of the team. There was obviously going to be a lot of people involved in this case. One group of detectives stayed at the scene, while the other was sent to start a neighborhood canvas. The victims inside that small apartment were Nancy Newman, age 32, Melissa, age 8, and Angie, age 3. The detectives covering the crime scene were all professionals, but many of them had their own children and were very emotionally connected to this crime in which two innocent children had been brutally killed. They were all determined to catch the monster or monsters that could have done this. The mother and oldest daughter had both been strangled and the youngest daughter had died from stab wounds. It was obvious from their bodies that they had also undergone all manners of violence prior to dying. They were all only partially clothed and left in such a way as to shock whomever came upon the scene. It was most obviously not a crime of passion. It looked like this could have been done by someone already experienced in murder and that likely greatly enjoyed committing the crime. Law enforcement knew this story was gonna blow up in the media because of the victims involved and the savagery of the crimes. They knew that they would have to solve it. And they looked for evidence in the apartment as meticulously as possible over the course of several days, gathering everything from large, obvious evidence like blood stains to the tiniest, most minute evidence like hairs and fibers. They could tell that the murders had probably occurred sometime after breakfast Saturday because there were still cereal bowls sitting out. The other set of detectives set out to canvas the neighborhood and talk to others that worked at the restaurant and track down the one other family member that lived in town, John's 25-year-old nephew, Kirby Anthony. He was young and had moved up to Anchorage about five months prior with his girlfriend, and they had gotten work on a fishing boat. They had stayed with the Newman family for a short time, but now he lived with a roommate and his girlfriend Debbie had left him. They tracked down his residence and broke the terrible news. 
He was overwhelmed with emotion and said he would do anything to help. He went down to the station to answer some questions about the family and his relationship with them. They asked when he had last seen them and he wasn't sure, but it had been several days. They then asked him to describe his Friday night activities. He said he was at a house party all night until about 7 a.m. He'd been doing cocaine and drinking beer. He then came home and woke up his roommate who had to go to work early. He laid down for a few hours before going to a friend's house to do his laundry and hang out all day. They also requested samples of his hair, fingerprints, and blood for elimination purposes, as they would do with everyone they came across that had ever been at the Newman apartment. One person without a verifiable alibi was Paul Chapman. He had been home alone for the entire first half of Saturday. Detectives moved quickly on the case because they knew it was going to be a media firestorm. While Anchorage had experienced plenty of crime in the 70s and 80s, they rarely involved children. As soon as the story hit the news, hundreds of tips began to pour in. In the first few days, detectives tracked down and investigated hundreds of them, but none would lead to anything useful. There was really no shortage of suspects in the area. Detectives found that there were a few sex offenders living close to the apartment building. There was also a young man who had been staying with family in the area and whom had abruptly left Alaska within a few days of the murders. He also had no alibi. Because the crime appeared to have been perpetuated by a sadistic psychopath, the FBI got involved and a profiler began trying to figure out just what kind of murderer they had on their hands. One of the first insights he had after hearing details of the crime was that this was someone who may have done this before and would likely do it again if not caught. He also thought that the perpetrator likely had low self-esteem, a history of escalating violence, did not fit well in society or thought that he didn't, had feelings of failure, was young, single, and had either a low paying job or no job. It was likely that this crime occurred once the killer reached his breaking point after some sort of stressful event in his life. The profiler was also certain that the killer knew the victims or at least Nancy. He had pummeled her in the head multiple times before strangling her. And the profiler believed this indicated he was mad at Nancy personally. Since Nancy was a waitress at a very popular restaurant with lots of regulars, it seemed possible that a customer had become fixated on her and had found out where she lived. However, there were also signs of overkill in the children's murders, which wouldn't be necessary if they were just getting rid of them as witnesses. The profiler was very convinced that this person knew the whole family, or at least in passing. Despite his alibi, they knew they had to look at John's nephew, Kirby, closer. He fit the profile to a T. He had recently been dumped by his long-term girlfriend as well. Investigators looked closer at his background and alarm bells began to go off. He came from an abusive childhood and had gotten in trouble with the law quite a few times since his early teen years, including violent crimes such as armed robbery. He also had a drinking problem and dabbled in various drugs. 
The most staggering and horrifying thing they learned about him was that he had been the prime suspect in an assault on a child in Idaho that left the victim with lifelong injuries. That had been just prior to moving to Alaska and was something that the Newman family was not made aware of by John Newman's sister, Kirby's mom. Despite the fact that she knew he was going to be staying with the Newmans and their young daughters. They tracked down his recent ex-girlfriend who had gone back to work on the fishing boat they'd been on together. She explained that Kirby had been physically violent throughout their relationship. She told him how by the end of their relationship, she was terrified of him. They were working on the fishing boat and she explained her situation to her boss. They had also seen Kirby's volatile side and it didn't take much thought for them to agree to let Kirby go and tell him he had to get off the boat. This saved Debbie from future abuse, but may have led to Kirby reaching his breaking point. She also said that he had a naturally aggressive personality, especially sexually, and a propensity for cocaine and alcohol, both of which made him even more aggressive. Scarier yet, he had a history of violence towards animals. She described him as a narcissist who thought he was smarter than everyone else. And like most psychopaths, he could turn on the charm whenever he needed to. And he'd had no shortage of women willing to date him throughout his life. Debbie revealed that originally she thought the detective had come to speak with her regarding an entirely different murder. Kirby had once told her that he had killed a man that had been found near a place he was working at the time. When asked if she thought that Kirby could kill a small child, she said yes without any hesitation. Investigators were worried enough to begin 24-7 surveillance on Kirby. He had tons of friends and was considered to be a bit of a ladies' man, so he was always on the move. They didn't try very hard to stay low-key either. They wanted him to crack under pressure. They told people at houses that he had just left the exact reason why they were following him. They wanted to isolate him, much like he had done to Debbie. The evidence against him was rapidly growing and would continue to do so. Detectives found out that his alibi for the day of the murder was not as solid as originally thought. The friend that he had spent Saturday with revealed that Kirby had actually come over more like 10.30 or maybe later rather than the nine o'clock that Kirby had said, giving him a very large gap in which he was unaccounted for. Furthermore, they knew that certain things had been taken from the apartment during the crime, such as expensive camera gear. A neighbor of Kirby's came forward and described a camera that Kirby had tried to sell him. It perfectly matched down to the description of the bag and extra contents inside to this camera that was stolen, originally belonging to John Newman. Meanwhile, all of the physical evidence from the scene had been sent off to the FBI and Quantico, who had many more people trained and available to look through it than the HRT. It wouldn't be long before Kirby began to panic over what was becoming a likely possibility of being arrested for the murders. By this time, he had sat through several hours of interviews where he often seemed calm and collected with an answer for every question and an explanation for every discrepancy. Just a month after the murders, Kirby called the APD to check in on the case status, 
He presented himself as a concerned relative, no doubt. A detective told him he wanted to discuss some forensic results he received regarding minute physical evidence from the crime scene. Kirby agreed, but instead of coming in for the appointment the next day, he started driving towards Canada. Kirby's roommate informed the police that Kirby had headed towards Canada seven hours earlier. That would leave an hour or less before he actually reached the border. By the time law enforcement were able to contact the border station, he had actually already left Alaska and was headed to the Canadian border, which was just a few miles down the road. In a extremely Hollywood moment, the Canadian border station got the phone call to inform them why this particular person was trying to enter their country at the exact same moment that Kirby was pulling up to the station. They told him in no uncertain terms that he wasn't allowed into Canada and said, essentially, get the hell out of here. He had no real choice but to head back down the road to the entrance back into Alaska. There, he was immediately arrested for the only thing that they legally had at the time, which was driving with a suspended license. But it was good enough to detain him long enough for the murder warrants to be signed and issued. And just like that, this probable triple murderer, rapist, possibly guilty of much more, was behind bars after a very close call. There is no telling what he might have gotten up to if he'd made it into Canada, as completely unhinged as he was by this time. The case was set to go to grand jury May 4th. We all know that rapists and killers of women and children tend to be unpopular prisoners and Kirby got the shit beat out of him in lockup more than a few times. By this time, of course, the story was everywhere, both statewide and nationally. So these guys were just waiting for their moment to get him. One fellow murderer actually planned to kill him, but didn't get the chance. They say that there's no honor among thieves, but for even the most hardened criminals, there are certain lines you just do not cross. I personally am not a violent person by nature, and I don't agree with capital punishment, but based on these crimes, I would happily have ended this guy's life without a second thought. In fact, I agree with the inmate that said if I had gotten my hands on him, there wouldn't need to be a trial. Needless to say, the grand jury was like, hell yes, let's send this asshole to prison forever, though probably not in those words. The trial was set for early 1988. While DNA analysis was in its infancy at the time, DNA found at the scene was examined and found to have a specific abnormal attribute, and if Anthony's DNA was found to have the same, it would lower the possibility of the murderer being a different person to a very small percentage. This type of test is performed by comparing allotypes which is essentially the variant of the immunoglobulin chains specific to an individual's genome. I am the opposite of a scientist, so I hope that that makes sense. It was a process that had actually been used for a few decades at this time, but prosecutors were worried that it might go over jurors' heads. It could be a risky move to use it as evidence in court. By 1988, only a few states had actually accepted this process as conclusive evidence in criminal trials. There was also a problem involving privacy laws. At the time, Alaska had more privacy laws than any other state, and it was going to be a fight 
to legally compel Anthony to provide the seminal fluid necessary for the test. However, the judge did rule up front that evidence related to his past crimes and his domestic abuse of his girlfriend would be suppressed. Now I need to go off on a bit of a tangent. Now, call me crazy, but I think that the fact that he was the prime suspect in the rape of a child who nearly died was pretty fucking relevant to this case, since it's an indication of his predilections and his violent tendencies. I understand that past offenses are not necessarily indicative of someone's tendency to repeat those crimes, but evidence has shown time and time again that people with violent, rapey tendencies are rarely, if ever, rehabilitated. And I honestly wish that more juries knew this, but I digress. The prosecution was somewhat worried about this case, despite the preponderance of evidence. Anthony's defense was extremely strong, headed by a well-respected and well-known attorney. Everybody involved was actually worried, primarily because of the reaction of the jury to the allowed evidence, which included extremely graphic photos and videos of the crime scene. The truth was that, despite the fact that Alaska had been home to a few serial killers by this point, this type of crime involving children with this level of violence had never occurred. Everyone involved knew that they were going to be in the spotlight of the whole state and the national media. Both sides were also worried about being able to seat 12 impartial jurors because of the already intense media coverage that had actually prompted the Anchorage Daily News editor to issue an apology for some news stories that contained extremely graphic content. Now, I read a book about this case as part of my research called Murder in the Family by Burl Bearer. And though I have read dozens or more true crime books in my life, I personally had to skip over sections of the book detailing the crime scene and injuries, so it's easy to understand that the general public was, let's just say, overwhelmed by the information. The writer himself admitted to crying more than a few times while writing the book. And despite the fact that the public was truly out for blood, some on the prosecution side were worried that Kirby would somehow be able to talk his way out of this crime. Because of his psychopathic nature to turn the charm on at will and convincingly lie, as he'd done throughout his life, they were worried that even one of the jurors might buy his performance and throw a guilty verdict into jeopardy. Finally, in April of 1988, after a year of preparation, the trial was set to begin, starting with a very large jury pool and several days of voir dire. Finally, 12 were selected, which represented equal numbers of men and women and a diverse subsection of the community. And despite the fact that the victims and defendant were family members, Kirby had no family members there to support him, which really says a lot about a person. Not even his own mother bothered to come up to Alaska to be there for her son. On the next episode and the conclusion of this case, I will discuss the trial in depth. I wanted to break this into two parts because I wanted to get you guys out a new episode this week. And in case you're confused about the numbering of my episodes, I decided to 
get rid of the Robert Hansen episode I just re-released last week because the quality is not up to par. So I'm going to actually redo that episode entirely and put it out in the future. So until next time, hope you guys are having a very patriotic 4th of July. I'm spending mine writing about murder as I do most days. Oh, I should probably mention that I have a new project starting. It's called Death Rattle Horror Podcast. And my previous horror podcast pretty much died out, I guess. Though I'll definitely have several of the other ladies as guest hosts on the new one. And I'm co-hosting it with somebody that actually co-hosts one of my favorite true crime podcasts called Murder Down Under. So you should definitely give that a listen. It's all about true crime in Australia and it's fantastic. But yeah, the new show is available on iTunes if you'd like to subscribe. We just recorded the first episode last night, so that will be dropping in your ear holes sometime either tonight or tomorrow. So we hope that you'll subscribe and definitely check out Murder Down Under. Again, it's one of my personal favorites. And until next time, hope you guys are having a great week. Hope you're having good time off of work so you can get drunk and eat all the hot dogs. And if you don't live in the United States, um, can I sleep on your couch for the foreseeable future? Just kidding. Bye guys. <laughs>